Hi, it's Alex. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Life Pedagogic from CFEY's Youth and Education podcast. In this series of podcast episodes, we're interviewing high-profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. These exploratory, open discussions will invite you into the speaker's worlds and encourage challenging thinking. We hope you enjoy listening. It's an experience familiar to many teachers in the inner city. A pupil with a talent for football makes their way into the academy of a major club. To that pupil and their parents, suddenly they're on the precipice of their dreams coming true, a career as a professional footballer. Suddenly school is a distraction and lessons feel redundant. Of course, the unfortunate truth is that the probability of that pupil ever playing professionally remains small at best. With all that in mind, Matt Jones OBE is someone who defies convention. Growing up in West London, Matt actually managed to make it as a professional footballer. And what's more, he didn't let his burgeoning football career distract him from his studies while he was at school. After a career as a player and a manager in professional football, Matt drew on his early commitment to education to retrain as a teacher. He's been head teacher at the highly regarded Arc Globe Academy in Southwark for over 10 years, and as executive head teacher at Arc Evelyn Grace, serving two of the most deprived communities in the country. Passionate about social mobility and closing the attainment gap, he founded the Elephant Group charity to push for fairer access to top universities for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. Along the way, he also earned himself an OBE for his services to education, something he regards as an honour that belongs to his whole school community. Exactly the kind of team spirit we'd expect from a former footballer. Matt Jones, welcome to your Life Pedagogic. Morning, Baz, and it's an absolute pleasure to be joining you. And uh, thank you for that uh, very nice introduction. <laughs> Matt, we're recording this right in the heart of GCSE exam season. Dare I ask, how's it going in your schools? Yes, yeah, so it's a very busy time for us, obviously. Uh, we've got the rest of the school um, continuing with their normal education, and then we've had to support our Year 11s and Year 13s through their exams, and that means putting on additional revision sessions um, and exam prep sessions. But um, overall, it's going very, very well. And Matt, I know you're a passionate commentator on the attainment gap, and uh, last year, 2022, saw the attainment gap at GCSE at the widest it's been since 2012. What are your expectations for this year? For Globe specifically, um, we've got a good record in closing that attainment gap. So I would expect us to perform um, you know, in the top 15, 20% of schools nationally for all types of schools, but for schools that serve the communities we do. Um, so 60% of our students are pupil premium students. Now, they're only... I say I'm going to be so about. I can be precise. Last year, there were 284 schools who had a pupil premium percentage out of 3,500 at that level, um, and out of those schools, uh, we were ranked fifth in the country and second in London for our progress rate. So um, we're ambitious. We still want more, uh, but if we, sh- I would expect us to produce something similar. That's great, Matt. And looking at a national picture, uh, particularly given the challenges that schools are having at the moment, are you, are you optimistic about uh, the attainment gap closing at all uh, in the way that it was just before 2022? Or are we, uh, are we a bit more pessimistic? I'm going to be agnostic, but I'd rather describe what we're experiencing. So what we experienced after the pandemic was initially um, children keen to be back in school. Attendance was great for that first academic uh, term, if not whole year. What we've experienced this time is that the impact of the pandemic and COVID has affected communities, disproportionately communities that serve disadvantaged uh, children and families. So attendance isn't great. So if I say the fundamental students in the, our type of communities haven't been attending as well as others, um, therefore the, the knowledge gaps and the learning gaps are more significant. And then there's some issues around mental health that have also affected some of our young people. And then just the general pressures of life and particularly the cost of living, which again will disproportionately affect the communities we serve. So um, without trying to preempt the outcome, they're they're the circumstances which we are uh, facing and dealing with. So yeah, if if I put that together, I can't expect it to be closing anytime soon and certainly not next year, but I'm I'm hoping, um, probably against all hope, that it doesn't widen even further still. Matt Jones, I want us to take us now from the present into the past. What's your very first memory of being in a school? So my very first memory was school in um, West London, primary school, Woodside. and I, uh, Woodend, sorry. Woodside, Woodend. And uh, I just remember uh, nothing about the classes. I don't remember being taught brilliant 
times tables or um, reading my first book, I do remember, and you may not be surprised uh, to hear this, just running around a playground kicking a, a ball. And um, remember the both the thrill, but also the <laughs> the challenge of being perceived as competent or adequate. That that really excited me. So I do remember being on the playground and playing uh, football. My first secondary memory was probably more important um, and a biggest, more significant seminal moment, which was I, I lived in a house in the state in West London, and there was a school literally. 200 to 300 meters away if I went through the back way to the school uh, and my mum didn't want to send me there and so at that moment when you're 11 years of age the importance of education comes rushing towards you because you're not going to the local school with your friends and so my mum sent me halfway across West London two bus rides away to go to a school that she perceived was much better um, and thank goodness that she did so yeah, so what I do remember from school is the football uh, in the first instance, and secondly, that it became really important at secondary age because my mum was prepared to send her 11-year-old baby boy across West London to attend a school that she thought was good. And you said a little bit about it there, Matt, but you're, um, you're from a working-class family uh, growing up in West London. Um, what was the attitude to education in your family, but also in your wider community? Was your family maybe defying convention there with the emphasis they put on education? We'd love to know more about that. That's a very interesting question. I think at the community I grew up in, um, outside of the family home, and probably a bit of the sign of the times, it wasn't, we didn't have league tables and Ofsted. So um, the pressure to perform, or school to perform, and, and therefore children to perform academically, wasn't as um, strident as it is now. But what I would say is that um, the community we lived in was. A, a close-knit community not many people moved in or out of the community so we all knew each other very very well so there was a, a warmth and a sense of community I wouldn't say they were aspirational I didn't know the routes into um, employment and or um, to university I was fortunate enough because of a relationship you through I formed through sport to have different friendship groups and I did get exposed through that to um the concept of education being important, but also in the home. My mother, uh, like I said, she knew that education was important. We came from a family of, I'd say artisans, but uh, politically engaged artisans. Um, my grandmother was very, very politically engaged. We were aware, so we had this narrative in the family that you know where you are financially um, doesn't define your future. You know, we were all constantly told that no one's better than you, you just have to work hard. And so that, that attitude, um, certainly I've... I've been imbued with that uh, and hopefully continue with that today. And what kind of a student were you? Were you academic, certainly sporty, I imagine, rebellious, perhaps all three? I was never rebellious. I want to be clear about that. Um, I was far too keen to please my mother uh, and some of my teachers. So, um, yeah, I'm a bit of an extrovert. Sport helped me uh, um, express myself. Uh, I was strong at maths. I took maths O-level. I'm that old. I did O-levels instead of GCSEs. Um, took that a year early. had a brilliant maths teacher called Mr. Herbert, who um, yeah was both inspiring, technically very good, but um, yeah, it just drove us hard, and I enjoyed those lessons. And I loved history and obviously sport, but it, overall, and maybe because of the diverse interests that I had, um, I was an average attainer at school. I wasn't anything mm. uh, special. Um, I'd like to think, as throughout my whole life, I, I believe if you focus on something, you can improve. And I've got a real strong belief in growth mindset. And maybe my mind wasn't totally um, focused on my studies. But, um, yeah, I certainly enjoyed school and had a passion for maths and sport and history. And did you have any sense at any point that you might end up as a teacher, let alone a, a, a very well-known head teacher? Um, was that something you aspired to at all? No, not explicitly. What I would say is that at first, when I was at school, if I wasn't going to be a professional footballer, the, the original Top Gun came out and I thought I'd be a fighter pilot. I was Naturally. fascinated by that. And it was linked to maths. And my maths teacher said, you know, being a, a pilot, you'd have to be good at maths. And I thought, oh, that could be me. Um, but I quickly realized that that wasn't going to be possible because I do have a, a slight fear, a phobia of heights. So, um, yeah, that wasn't going to happen anytime soon. But in terms of um, the, the career, I did like 
getting better. So I got into coaching and quite early on, um, helping other players improve and mm. improve myself. So I always had this uh, thought around, yeah, helping people be better at what they do, yeah, through coaching football. And looking back, uh, you've mentioned Mr. Herbert. Were there any teachers who really, in, when, you, when you started your own teaching career, who really inspired you when you were at school and you thought, that's the kind of teacher I want to be, or indeed, that's the kind of coach I want to be uh, as a teacher? Yeah, so I had, I had a non-traditional route into education. Uh, so I started off in a school as an unqualified teacher. And uh, so the person that uh, really inspired me, and still does to this day, uh, was my first head teacher called Graham Abel. And... Um, his super strengths were that he really invested in in people. Uh, hence, I started as an unqualified teacher. By the time I left the school, I was a, an assistant principal. And then secondly, he, he was really strong on school culture. Um, it was at the time when all schools were maintained schools by local authority. But then uh, when I was there, they had the first iteration of academies, a grant-maintained school which meant you got your funding directly and you didn't have to buy into local authority services and as soon as he got that status every single support member of staff had uh, the school's um, uh, crest embezzled on their uniforms and he was very cute at making sure everyone's connected to the community so instead of it previously being uh, Essex local authority uh, um, memorabilia on his shirt it would be the schools. It was it, it, he was very clear about that. So yeah, culture. He focused on culture and he invested in his people. Now, of course, it would be impossible to discuss your childhood, uh, Matt Jones, without talking about football. Um, mm. At what age did you start to see football as a potential career path for you? To be quite honest, you don't think of it as a potential. You just play the game and you love the game. And you, through loving the game and playing as much as you do, opportunities came uh, my way. So from the age of 12 to 14, 15, you, I, I realised I was quite good. You was getting opportunities to play for your borough, then your county. Then I got um, asked to uh, play and train with Chelsea and I started to get into a youth team. And the only time I really thought about it being a career was literally in year 11, you know, when you think about, am I going to get a contract to be an apprentice um, from the age of 16 to, to 18? So, yeah, I didn't really think of it explicitly as that it was just enjoy the game and hope I get a contract uh, I subsequently didn't get a contract at Chelsea but I did secure a contract somewhere else but yeah age 16 was the first time I really thought I might be getting paid to do this for a living and you're at this age you know age 14 15 16 how did you manage to square your time in school with this budding professional career in football um, as I was saying in the introduction you know I'm sure we've both experienced lots of pupils getting into the academy of a club and mm -hmm. then dropping out of their academic side of things almost entirely. How did you square that? Well, I suspect my teachers say I didn't square it, um, my academic teachers. Um, <laughs> but uh, like I said, very clearly, my mum was a massive influence. And she said something quite early on around um, football is what you do, it's not who you are. And so she made it seem like a temporary thing. So I knew that I had to uh, do well at school. And so I, I wouldn't say I was particularly successful at that. What I do know, I was able to continue my studies because when I left home at the age of 16 to sign um, for Southend United uh, full-time, unusually uh, for a 16-year-old signing for a professional football team, my mother negotiated with the chairman that I would only sign for them if they facilitated and paid for night school so I continue my education. So the short answer is, I don't think I was particularly good at managing it at school, but once I went into sport, I continued with sport at the age of 16, my mum made sure I continued with my studies. And so that was really, really helpful. And we were actually talking about this uh, just last week, weren't we, Matt? Which is that um, this is an, an area where things have actually changed quite a lot. Um, yeah. Clubs are now taking their responsibility to keep their young players in education like really seriously. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how things have changed there? Yeah, so one of the other things I, I do, I'm senior education advisor to the Premier League. And um, as you, you rightly say, Baz, young people still today, uh, it's the only professional sport where you're expected to leave school at 16 to pursue a, a professional sporting career. Most, In fact, all other sports in the UK, they continue in their education, at least up to the age of 18. Premier League realised this was a gap because what would happen is that regardless of your achievement at secondary school, Typically, in a vast majority of cases, uh, until recently, 
regardless of what grade you got, you were expected to do a level three BTEC um, sports qualification. What, I, what we do know is that in the Premier League, of the people who go into the scholarship, which is their first year um, after leaving secondary school at the age of 16, 17, the Premier League's profile would mean if they were in a normal school, 60% of them would be accessing A-levels. And so that, you know, you shouldn't have to sacrifice academic qualifications or something that you have a flaring um, to pursue a career that by the time you're 23, the likelihood is um, only 7% of you will be still in the game professionally. And so the Premier League have really driven hard, along with the clubs, the professional football clubs, to make sure that there is a range of support and a range of qualifications that players can pursue um, in line with their attainment band. So that's been a real improvement recently just before uh, you sign on as a professional school the professional football clubs often expect players to have a, a day out of school to do extra training previously there was no expectation on the players when they had that day out to have an education input at a football club but now you have to make sure that the clubs have to make sure that they provide the players who missed their time at school with a support to do the additional learning that they've missed in the lesson. So it, it's moved on disproportionately. I've only been working in the Premier League, I think it's my fourth year now, um, and it's changed remarkably. Almost every, in fact, I'm pretty certain every Premier League club offers a suite of A-levels for the players to continue their studies while they play football. A, a really significant uh, change, Matt James, that I'm sure you were, you were instrumental in bringing about. Um, you signed to play for uh, Southend United, and uh, you're also carrying on your education uh, just before enduring. Um, I wonder, uh, this is a quote that I like, uh, the philosopher and the writer Albert Camus once wrote, everything I know about morality I learned from playing football, which makes me wonder, Matt Jones, uh, what do you think you learned about being a great teacher from your time as a footballer? So firstly, I would say um, it gives you a skill set where you connect with people to achieve their shared objective or endeavor, you have to sacrifice a bit of yourself to be part of a team um, to, yeah, to achieve any given objective. So that's multi-layered because there's aspects of uh, selflessness, but there's also aspects of effective communication um, and drive. So that's one thing. You know, how do you get work together with a group of disparate people to achieve a shared um, objective? The other thing, um, which was kind of implicit as you're going through school, I gained from it is um, a high level of personal confidence. Uh, the confidence comes in two ways. Firstly, um, uh, internally, uh, by knowing that, and if you're self-aware enough to know that you're at a certain level and then you, you practice these skills, and, oh, and I can do this now, then that's uh, empowering, gives you uh, a sense of self-efficacy that if you work hard, you can get get better. Um, so that helps with your confidence, but just as importantly is when you're a young person, and it's great to see it now, male or female, a young person, and you're good at something, and sport is a very overt way of demonstrating excellence, it's very visible, do you get a lot of affirmation and you get uh, a lot of uh, praise? And that can, if you use that energy, have positive impact on you in other spheres. So, yeah, it gave me that self-confidence and affirmation that all people need to be successful. And then finally, um, it gives you a, a discipline, a self-discipline. Much of football, people see the the players go out onto, if you're fortunate enough to play in the Premier League, go out onto the Premier League pitch on a Saturday or a Sunday in front of 30,000, 40,000 people and get all the adulation. But what they don't see is all the hours that you put in behind the scenes, training, eating the right thing, making a... Uh, sacrifices um, you know pre-season anyone who's done a pre-season training camp will know that you don't do that because you love it you feel rotten you feel tired you feel ill you, your limbs are aching but you do it for those moments where you are on the pitch and you do experience that shared endeavor of achieving a, a victory on a Saturday and uh, yeah that, that's, it's a bit like a drug but it gave me a discipline about doing that doing things that you don't like i'll quote someone you would never guess who said this but um he states you might do this because it's popular on social media at the moment but um this individual said that discipline is doing something that you hate to do as if you love it um that was from the great philosopher mike tyson uh, but <laughs> it, but it's very true it's a truism and so yeah it, it that prepared me for discipline and one more anecdote was when i was uh, playing semi-professional football later on in my career at Dagenham and Redbridge 
uh, the manager, and this is a discipline, right? So the, the manager uh, would weigh us every single week. And you had two pound leeway. If you were overweight by three pounds, you got fined 10 pounds of your salary. So uh, if, if the intrinsic motivation wasn't there, the extrinsic certainly was uh, without losing my uh, salary. So yeah, uh, discipline. So three things. Learn how to connect with a community to, to, to achieve a shared endeavor. Like I said, that's multifaceted and multi-layered. Personal confidence uh, and a, a discipline to work hard and um, make sacrifices to achieve your objectives. Absolutely fascinating, Matt Jones. Um, it'd be great to hear like the arc of your football career. So you play at Southend United, you move between a few clubs, eventually become a, a manager. Take us through that, that story. Yeah, so um was at Southend for three years and got offered an extension to a contract. I don't think the manager really wanted me. He didn't offer me much of a pay rise. In fact, I got offered mm-hmm. £10 a week more to play semi-professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and probably play more first-team games. I only played a handful of first-team games for Southend United. So, um, yeah, I made that positive decision uh, to be semi-professional and continue with uh, my education. So I played semi-professional with various clubs, and uh, towards the end of my career, um, uh, I was playing for Dagenham Redbridge and was qualifying as a teacher at the simultaneously. Then um, I had I got the opportunity to be a semi-professional football manager. I did my UA for a coaching license um, at the age of 24, which I was one of the youngest ever to achieve that at the age of 24. Um, teaching, being in the teaching environment, helped me develop those skills. And most footballers won't pick up a coaching the the concept of coaching until towards the end of their career. So uh, my career was professional career was terminated uh, rather earlier than anticipated. So um, then at the age of about 35, I got the opportunity to manage semi-professionally at Billericay Town. And one of my last games as a manager was a, a first-round FA Cup match against Swansea City. And the manager then was Roberto Martinez, who went on to manage uh, Belgium. So it's great to be in a position where you can look back at your career and think, yeah, I picked my uh, football brains against some of the best <laughs> in the world. They did beat us, but we did go 1-0 one, one up and they got the winner in the 86th minute, which was a heartbreaker. Um, Swansea were flying high in League One then. They were at the top of the league. But um, yeah, that was this general progression into management. But management in sport, and particularly football, is a precarious business. And uh, <laughs> shortly after that, that fixture... Um, it was literally uh, two months. I got the sack. Um, so wow. you're only uh, you're only ever one game away from the sack in football. Um, so our league form wasn't great. Maybe because of the cup run, or maybe because I'm just making excuses. It wasn't great, and I got the sack. But at that point, I've made a real conscientious or conscious decision to focus on uh, my education. Uh, I was assistant principal at the time um, when I was doing that role, but I, I said no. Football's too up and down. Um, uh, I'm passionate about education and. Uh, hopefully changing the lives of young people. So I I focused on yeah, my leadership journey in education. Amazing. And yeah, just I, I think we've, we've we've picked up a few of the steps along the way, but take us through that journey from um, professional football, playing and managing into the, uh, the the classroom. At what point did you realise that's what you wanted to do and how did you make that journey? Yeah, so like I said, I left Southend at 20 years of age. Uh, I managed to secure a role as, uh, you wouldn't be surprised to know, as a PE instructor um, in a school, not qualified, obviously. Um, and that was on the back of a conversation with my mum. I'd had an interview at a marketing company in central London. And uh, I went up for the interview uh, and I went back to my mum's, sitting down having dinner. And I just went, I've got offered this job, mum, but I'm not sure if it's for me. And uh, she said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I love, I love working with people and um, I love sports. She went, well, you try going to be a PE teacher. I went, but you have to be qualified. And she went, no, they, at the time, they were quite happy PE teachers. So I did manage to secure a role as a PE instructor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and initially, I just looked at it as something that I obviously I enjoyed doing. I could impart some of my experience and knowledge onto them. Not just um, football. I also played county cricket for Middlesex, uh, played for the district basketball team. So it was, it was blessed to go to a great school where a, a marvellous sports department and gave me plenty of opportunities. So I could share some of that knowledge with the the um, students I was working with. And then I, I was simultaneously playing semi-professional football. So I was training two evenings a week, playing on a Saturday. 
which is quite tough to ma um, managing both. But then, uh, around about the age of 25, I was quite happily bobbling along, and uh, one of the deputy heads in the school that I was working at, literally, it might be a HR issue now, literally got me in a head headlock, and he's a rugby player, and he said, "Look, you can't. Football's going to stop at one some point soon. You know, you're going to have to think about where where's your education career going to go." And um, he said, "You know, you should." You know, qualify as a teacher. As a teacher, um, and so, like I said, I continued with m many of my studies in history at night school, etc. And um, yeah, I started to do an open university degree in social science and politics. So I was playing football semi-professionally, had a full-time job, started my uh, degree um, part-time, uh, and then had a had my first. Well, I didn't have my first. My wife had our first baby at uh, 27, 28. And, um, yeah, combining all those things uh, was really tricky. But I go back to what um, football taught me about um, discipline and work ethic and having that structured time and organizing yourself. Um, so I qualified as a teacher uh, uh, late 30, uh, early 30s and then became a head of subject, uh, head of year, and then uh, assistant principal. And... Much of that was to do with, like I said, the head teacher who took that risk of me as a, a unqualified teacher who invested time, paid for half of my degree, um, supported me with um, some time off if I needed to do some additional study or meet a, a deadline for a particular assignment. Um, yeah, and then around about the age of 37, I was sitting in my office, I was assistant principal. And I saw this image on a screen. I wasn't intentionally looking for jobs. I, I love the school that I was at. Um, but this image was of a, um, it was from behind this young person with a rucksack walking up um, a path towards a, a tower block. And it looked like, from behind, it looked like a student of uh, Afro-Caribbean heritage. So I, and I just, it really struck me because it looked a bit like me from behind walking up um, to the tower block. And it, it was this, advert for um, Future Leaders, which was then a leadership program to encourage mm. uh, um, aspiring heads. And I wasn't even thinking about headship at that time. I, I just I, I wasn't. But it was a program for aspiring heads for, uh, to have a real high-level input and intentional leadership program to work in challenging urban schools. Uh, and yeah, I, I applied for it. It's only been going one year. I took the punt and... Uh, Apply for it. Not hadn't had a successful graduate go on to head teachership. You had to give up your permanent role for a one-year guaranteed contract, and then after that, you had to secure a role, not as a head teacher, but at least as a deputy head teacher in another another setting. And it had to be in London, and I lived, moved out to Essex. Um, yeah, I took that risk, and thank goodness I did. Um, it was singly the most important decision I made in terms of my education career. In terms of the people that you meet, the the amazing leaders that I was fortunate to uh, work with closely, both people who were sharing their knowledge, who were existing heads at the time, and also a wonderful group of like-minded individuals who naively or otherwise believed that they could change the system um, by uh, sharing knowledge and working collaboratively. And um, yeah, I've met and continue to be very close friends with many people that I met on that program. Fantastic, Matt. I know that um, we still we, the, the education profession is still uh, bedeviled by the fact that we have massive issues of underrepresentation of key groups, both in teaching but also in senior leadership in particular. Like I certainly know that um, um, if you are of non-white heritage, you're much less likely to end up being a school leader, let alone a head teacher. Um, if you're of a working class background, you're much less likely to be a teacher, let alone to be uh, a school leader or a head teacher. What are, your, what are your reflections there on someone who has made that journey and what more do we need to be doing at a systemic level to be uh, getting uh, people from those demographic groups into the profession and into those leadership roles? Yeah, I'm, I'm slightly more optimistic uh, than um, some other people in the sector because I, t I just think if you look back, the head teachers now um, in the system uh, would typically be of my generation. Uh, and so if you look back, just to if I'm talking about ethnicity, um, you know, we've had an increase in diversity as we've gone through the generations. So there weren't many um, 
black people, Afro-Caribbean people, Asian people in the population at the time, or there were fewer, there were fewer. So just by sheer numbers uh, coming into the population and the increasing achievement of some ethnic groups, I do think that will come through the system, um, just that my generation, probably the first generation of um, British-born uh, ethnic minorities who've benefited from the education system and I say uh, as we've gone through generations more and more numbers and more success means that we will have increasing representation. I think there's two aspects that there's, there's the mindset or, and or the um, attitude of um, minorities in the sector. So for example my experience in, in the sector is that too many uh, ethnic minorities, particularly Black African and Black Caribbean, tend to lean towards the pastoral roles in schools, and I don't know why that is. Um, uh, maybe they've got a communication skill set with certain groups within the school, and they seem to have better relationships or understanding uh, the context in which certain minorities are experiencing. But if you're going to be a head teacher, you're going to have to have a much broader skill set. So my first role as an assistant principal was, I was blessed, it was both academic and pastoral is a key stage four lead and so the, the beauty of that role is that yes I was managing a or leading a team of assistant principals but at the same time I was at the sharp end we had to get some GCSE results and so you learn very quickly to uh, manipulate review data evaluate the provision and put in interventions I would say so that one is the mindset of the leaders or potential future leaders by making sure that they are having that broad experience both pastoral but academic uh, experience either teaching learning or in terms of evaluating school performance and then the other end of it is um, making sure that those that are in the system in leadership positions cast in that more widely um, both systematically um, and individually to look out for talent and uh, you know I've got no there are no silver bullets other than say that it's a mindset you got to believe that talent is everywhere and then you have to nurture that talent through mentoring programs um, some formal some informal I've got many informal mentors that have helped me along the way um, but I've also benefited from formal coaching um, in my leadership journey so two sides to it you know making sure that uh, minority groups are having the relevant experience don't pigeonhole yourself or let others pigeonhole you into certain roles in schools and then also making sure that uh, large um, institutional organisations are being thoughtful and engaging with uh, the various demographics that are underrepresented in the leadership roles. Matt, you've been head teacher at Art Globe Academy now for over 10 years. What was the school like when you took it over and how have you changed it? Wow, let me... Let me think back. So um, I would say Arcad, Arcad, the school became an art school in 2008. And by the time I got here in June 2012, I think that's something like five or six different iterations of leadership at the time. So leadership wasn't stable. What I would say when I walked in the door and what, when I first walked in the door, it was part of my assessment for the head teacher role. And I'd been, I'd been for a few head teacher roles. I'd been for three pulled out of one, rejected by two others. Incidentally, one of the schools that rejected me was another art school. So um, um, I'm nothing if not a trier. I kept going back to them. Um, but um, my assessment was to do an assembly on site to the students at Globe. And uh, part of the process where the students were lining up outside and I was stood out on the playground watching them line up. And two things struck me. Firstly, um, the student were the students were extremely compliant and so they would do what they were told they were well managed by the the leadership team at the time um and the other thing that the student body represented the type of community i wanted to serve and grew up in you know with 95 percent at the time it was 90 percent non-white british it's now 95 percent non-white british so i felt a connection and I, I thought well firstly the students want to do well because they were following the instruction by um, the adults and then secondly it's, it's a group or community group that I want to serve and um, hopefully um, improve their uh, life chances so that was very superficial what I found when I got here that um, behavior systems and cultures there was well ordered but it's quite punitive um, and then secondly there wasn't a real focus on the quality inside the classroom either curriculum or the quality of teaching 
And so, um, yeah, it was it was strong in some aspects. Like I say, students were very compliant, do what they were told, but it wasn't uh, a sense of community. They kind of were doing what they were told because they they just get heavily sanctioned if they didn't, rather than um, inspiring or trying to attempting to inspire them to achieve better. And then the professionals in the building, yeah, weren't really um, focused on the important day-to-day stuff of delivering great lessons every single day. Um, so yeah, focused on strong systems for teaching and learning, assessment and evaluating a provision, uh, and then try to create a sense of community and aspiration. I know thinking back on your uh, early uh, teaching experiences, Matt, you were talking about the importance of culture, like in the very first school you worked in, creating that sense of belonging. That's something that um, is, is well known about Art Globe is that you have a really strong sense of culture. Um, can you tell, talk, tell us through a, a few more ways that that comes through? And do you think that's particularly important serving the community you serve, which is, um, you know, perhaps one of the most deprived in the country? Yeah, it's, it's significant. When you look at any school, any great school, um, the first thing you're struck by is a culture. I, you know, I've, I've been visiting, very fortunate to visit some of the, um, historically, uh, the most prestigious schools in the country, Eton, etc. And there's, there's, a, there's a language, this is how we do things here, and it's clear, it's explicit. Some of it is implicit, and it's been left from generation to generation, but much of it still today is very explicit. And so, yeah, absolutely, culture was first and foremost. And one of the first things I did was set the expectation with our mission statement. Now, I, would, I still to this day often get challenged about this mission statement. Um, so I'll share it, and then I'll talk about the challenge, which is our mission statement is preparing students for university and for them to be leaders in their community. Now, the first thing people say is that, yeah, university is not for everybody. When I got here, <laughs> university wasn't for anybody. I literally shared that with uh, the staff, and some of the staff audibly would challenge me over that and said, well, these children go to university. Mm. And so the first thing about culture is by setting the ambition and communicating it clearly, and there's graphics everywhere. It's on all of our letter-headed paper, our communication, so that everybody sees it. And so that university piece is important because it's um, a proxy or an indicator of the level of ambition we have for our community. And that we use the word preparing students for university intentionally because we don't want students not to go to university because they haven't got the skills, but it's a positive choice. They want another route into employment. So it's preparing students uh, for university and be leaders in their community. Because if you go to Eton, they, they're not only expected to go to university, they expect to be leading the country, and they have been. Mm-hmm. And so um, I refuse to accept that disproportionately uh, the talent in this country comes from 7% of the population who are fortunate enough to go to some of the most prestigious uh, states, um, private schools in the, in the UK. I believe we're missing out as a nation by not reaching in and ensuring that communities have the opportunity, people in certain communities have the opportunity to flourish and shine and pursue their ambition um, in a meaningful way. That means they can be successful. So, yeah, that was one of the things by setting out the expectation. And in about two and a half years in, three years into the work, um, when we've got the, the team of leaders and staff that I felt were aligned to that mission and wanted to deliver it um we did a really important piece of work in creating our culture pyramid now it was a risk for me it was the first real big risk i took as a leader which was until that point most of the things in fact not most i would say all of the things that we did were um had my fingerprints firmly all over them i was into every aspect of the school this was the first time where i literally handed over um, some key principles, some key words, and said, look, here, here's what we're about as Globe. What's the most important thing uh, for us as a community? And let the leaders decide. And it was literally a numbers game where they were working in small groups. We did a, a prioritization activity around a diamond nine, and I literally counted out which words were the most popular from the different groups of um, teacher leaders that we worked with and made that our culture. So we've got six aspects of our culture pyramid, and it forms everything that we do. And, and how we are as a community with each other. And we use it to celebrate student performance, staff uh, performance, reward system in school is based on it, our behavior system is based on it, and we refer to it all of the time. And so, um, yeah, those two pieces, setting out your ambition clearly and being unapologetic for the high aspirations that you have for your community and also defining what it means to be part of the community and using it all the time in various systems and processes you have in your school. And a clear example of that, as I said, to give you some already around behavior systems. But um, every meeting 
leadership meeting starts here at Globe with a culture pyramid activity. So we'll take an aspect of the culture pyramid. Uh, it could be growth mindset, it could be professionalism, it could be integrity. And there'll be some sort of reflection on that. So we're bringing it to life in all the work that we do. Thinking about those features of your culture, the, the emphasis on aspirations, the emphasis on high expectations, the emphasis on uh, progression to uh, university, it perhaps shouldn't be any surprise, Matt, that you went on to found uh, the Elephant Group. Um, can you tell us a bit more about uh, the Elephant Group, uh, the, the purpose of setting up the organisation and what you guys do? Yeah, so the, I, I used to get really frustrated every year around A-level results day. There'll be social commentators or journalists talking about, you know, the underrepresentation of state school or disadvantaged children uh, accessing top universities. And you'd hear commentators and journalists talking about it. You would hear the universities talking about it, but you didn't hear head teacher voices at the time talking about this as a as a thing that that, that it was a gift for them to support the young people into those universities. And so um, that used to frustrate me that we didn't have a voice and all the expectation wasn't there amongst a significant cadre of leaders to say, this is what we should be doing. Um, so yeah, I started a charity based on the work, the wonderful work that the team have done here at Art Globe Academy. Um, we set up a sixth form and pretty quickly into our sixth form, our sixth form students were accessing top third university at the same rates as the average independent school was. So it was around about 60% of our students in leaving globe went on to a top third university and so from that i knew it could be done and i know i know it should be done to like i say to make sure that talent is nurtured for wherever it lies in the in the country so we set up this group based on the experiences we had at globe with a a group of friends or um, peers that i've got to know over time a small group of eight schools to say what what could we achieve by collaborating together and working with some really brilliant universities who came on the journey with me at the very start or with us at the very start to collaborate together to be pragmatic about what we need to do to make our students be successful in their applications to the top universities so we had Cambridge, Oxford, King's, Exeter wow. uh, join us on that first part of the journey and basically what it is it's a collaboration where we fix that collaboration into four or five structured meetings a year so strategically we meet together with the widening participation leads or access leads at the universities and head teachers come together to try and solve the intractable problems that are coming from the schools. And um, a really practical example of that is what we found out very early in uh, the pilot year was that students from disadvantaged backgrounds were more likely to apply and succeed in their application if they went to a high quality university summer residential. Hmm. So when we looked at this through the schools, we found that only about 50% of the young people on the program were applying or secured a place at a great university summer school. So we brought that problem to the group uh, and quite quickly Exeter said, oh, we can host it. Um, uh, a sponsored company said, yeah, we can provide some resources and, and the schools yeah, said we could provide some staff. So very quickly we had an elephant group summer school to solve that hmm. very specific problem in a very practical way. And that's the model uh, that we have a group of talented uh, leaders and um, professionals working together to solve, practically solve the problems that they're facing in real time. Fascinating and absolutely uh, vital work, Matt. Um, there's two questions, Matt James, we always ask all of our guests on the Life Pedagogic. Firstly, looking back on your career in education, is there anything you've really changed your mind about? And if so, what changed it? There was something that changed me and um, therefore uh, improved me as a leader and a teacher. Uh, and I'm sad to say it came quite late um, in my career. So, you know, sports always has given me a, a strength, which is focus on a target, focus on the objective. You've heard me mention that a fair few times. <laughs> um, and so when uh, the league tables came in and I was responsible for achievement and uh, it was like, you know, percentage getting grade C's and above at that time, uh, not fours and above. If you gave, gave me a target, we would work hard for that target. So that was our target. I have to confess, um, in terms of academics, if you if you didn't really have a chance of getting a four, I would say that um, my attention wasn't wholly on you. Um, it was focused on the fours and the borderline or, or borderline D grades and C grade students to make sure they secure 
the best possible outcomes. I do still think that's important because um, then a C grade or now a grade four is an important grade because it, I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but it's a, it's a life-changing grade. It means you can go on to level three courses. So it's still important. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that anything outside of that spectrum was given full attention. But then I had um, uh, uh, twins and uh, one of the twins has got Down syndrome. And what th that meant it was a, a, obviously a life-changing moment for me and my family. Mm. Um, and what what I've come to realize um, rather too late in the game is that every child should be pushed to achieve mm. uh, the, the best academic and social outcomes that you can possibly um, achieve. And so my ambitions for Francesca, you know, I'm still equally ambitious. You know, she may not go to university, but that doesn't mean we're not going to um, give her the best chance of achieving, like say, academically and socially. And so that changed me significantly. I, I wish earlier on in the piece uh, through my leadership journey, I had, um, I'll put it crudely, um, uh, I wish I had more ambition for students that for various reasons potentially are not going to achieve uh, that life-changing grade but still deserve a brilliant experience and um, deserve to be pushed. Yeah, that's fascinating, man. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Um, and finally, what two things would you most like to change about the English educational system? Bass, that's a very unfair question, but I'll try to be as succinct. Because one of its, um, one's quite, I'll go with a simple one first. Look, I think um, if we're really serious about uh, reducing the attainment gap and supporting people from disadvantaged grounds, it, it, I, I may be oversimplifying it, but it is quite simple. We know, for example, um, by the data that I've downloaded from the DFE website, that of the schools who've got 60% or more pupil premium students, there are only 285 in the country. 284 last year, based on last year's data. Hmm. And if you think, okay, out of those 284, only 8% of them had positive progress then on the progress eight measure, then you know there are about 230 schools, um, maybe more, 240 schools that need a significant amount of investment, but that's um, can be quite targeted. And so my um, one change I would do is, and I tried it previously, but I would change the, uh, the terms and conditions, teachers pay, teachers pay in terms and conditions for anyone who works in that area, in those types of communities, are doing the hardest work at the hardest time in our, in our education system, for our education system, there should be incentives to do so. Mm -hmm. And um, if if I I used this analogy previously, uh, and it's not always helpful because it's it, it's quite a um, uh, a challenging concept. But if you look at the, like the the regular army, you've got the regular army who do work that I would never do, and you know they keep us safe and um, yeah uh, 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 yeah and do stuff that I, I I don't think I could ever countenance. But nevertheless, you've got the regular army. But then you have the SAS mm -hmm. who do the real challenging, difficult. Um, work, uh, the special ops who go in and yeah do that. We need the special ops of educators to go into those areas. So we know the schools. You can name the schools. You can pull it up, and you we need to invest heavily in those schools. We need to get the talent in to those environments. Uh, that's not to say that the uh, staff there aren't working hard. I'm just saying we need the talent and the resource goes in there. So that's a simpler thing, but it is multi-layered. And so the other thing that I would change. Um, is, and so I'll start with a question and maybe suggest some uh, solutions, which is the question is, how do we get all the services that are meant to support our most complex, challenged, disadvantaged communities to work in a coherent way? For me at the moment, they're too disparate. They work in silos uh, and they're not based at where their clients are. So, for example, social services um, typically based at the town hall, central town hall, away from um, their their clients. How can we make sure that those services, mental health services, are flexibly and quickly allocated? So that's a huge question. There's some structural things that would need to happen. Um, but if I talk about um, Yuri Bromfrenner, who talks about this eco ecological system theory, which is like all the multiple facets of 
child development, you know, make sure that they, they're fed well and they have a nutritious diet. And that, that's not a problem that schools can solve on their own. We were expected to be a big part of the solution during the pandemic by providing uh, the lunches. But since the pandemic's uh, gone away in the short term, um, yeah, it, it, normal services have been resumed. You know, I mean, if students, are, uh, families are desperate, we haven't got the resource to be able to um, give them the, the food that they need to eat well, not just during term time, but during holiday time. The other thing is around um, social services. So if you've got social services, but the practitioners are based in a remote building and the family's got to go to the building and or the social worker's got to make the trip to the uh, family home to make the ac access or have a complicated arrangement where they have to ring into the school to, for, to make an appointment before they can come. Why, why not have social workers based in schools? So the, the, the structural change for me would be that we need to create smaller hubs or communities of schools like they did in Harlem the um, Harlem Children's Zone, where they had the wraparound services coordinated by um, a group of local professionals who have the insight and then can allocate the resources in a flexible way. And like I said, a bit like the Elephant Group, in real time to f solve the problem. Um, that would mean some real significant changes in practice and ways of working for many professions and some seeding of um, power and or regulatory reform but it's much needed because at the moment we can't deliver the change we need to deliver for certain communities because the system doesn't isn't coordinated and doesn't talk to each other effectively enough i think uh, there's many people listening to this matt who would heartily agree matt jones it's been a pleasure and a privilege having you on the podcast i hope you've enjoyed discussing your life pedagogic thank you very much Bas. it's been a pleasure we love making this podcast if you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things that you can do. 1. Subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you are listening. 2. Share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. 3. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.